0: if you please open your Bibles now to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. In March of last year, we were in a series of messages that are an exposition of Paul's two letters to the Thessalonian church. And when it was necessary to shut down for COVID, I thought it would be only a few weeks and until we could restart the series and finish it. And a few weeks dragged on into months. And during that time, I still hope that we would be able to uh, resume the study. But instead, we we started with several other topics, including a short series on unity in the church. And we've just finished up a series on Christian warfare. And I didn't want to delay this any further. We're not yet back into church, but I don't want to delay. So we're going to go back to this series in Second Thessalonians. Because there are some important teachings here in the rest of this book that I think that the church does need and I I don't want to miss. Now, my major problem in doing this is how do we get back into uh, this series and attempt any type of continuity? Uh, Unfortunately, I was ready to uh, preach the. Fourth message in a series on the apostasy of the Antichrist and uh, I, I wasn't able to preach that sermon and so I wondered how am I going to get back into uh, this sermon and and how can I how can I preach that and and uh, re- retain any sort of semblance of of uh, continuity and I felt that I really couldn't do it so I decided that in order to make sense of this It's now been 10 months. I don't know how much you remember. I don't know if you remember where we were or what we said. So I'm going to pack back up to part number one of these messages on the Antichrist and preach the first three parts again. Parts two and three of the sermons never made it to video. Now, my experience is that most people don't remember very well. And if you do remember, that's fine. It's not going to hurt to hear it again. And if you don't remember... The sermons have been updated somewhat, and it will seem as fresh as daisies. You won't even know the difference. Now don't worry about this. I'm not going to preach those first three parts today. Uh, we'll take the normal course and go through them one at a time until we get to the fourth sermon in this series, and we'll do that, and then we'll finish up Second Thessalonians. So today we back up to sermon number sixty five in our series. Of living in the light of Christ's return and our subject is the end times it's the rise to power of the world's most destructive individual if you think of the world's worst dictators the world's vilest governments in all of history and then combine all of them you would still fall short of the destructive power of this one satanic person Now, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see the apostles' description of the end times in relation to the rise of the Antichrist. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1, Now, we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, ...showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was with you, I told you these things? And now we know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And Then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they all might be damned to believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, most of the time when people study end-time events, the information that they want to learn the most is who is this person? Who will this person be? Who is the Antichrist? And that interest sometimes becomes so overwhelming that, as I've noted before, more people become interested in who the Antichrist is rather than knowing about the true Christ, who is Jesus Christ. And while they're more interested in the Antichrist, they may not even be aware that as humans, we are we have more in common with the Antichrist than we do with the true Christ. And the reason is that the spirit of Antichrist is formed in the heart of every person in this world. And it is a a spirit of unbelief. It is a spirit of rebellion. It is a spirit of hatred towards God. And everyone is born with this evil spirit. This term, Antichrist, that's a compound word. The first part of it is anti, which means against. Or it can mean in the place of the second part of it comes from the Greek Christos, which means Christ. That's the same as Messiah. And so Antichrist is against Christ or in the place of Christ. And we find both of those meanings fit the Bible's description of this man. It also fits the hatred in the heart of every person. In our natural condition, we are against God, we are against his Christ, we are anti, and that is the plain teaching of Scripture. We put other gods in the place of Christ, and this is the source of all idolatry. And as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, we refuse to retain God in our knowledge, and we will not submit to the knowledge of God, which is Jesus Christ. And so the true creator and sustainer, the providential God of heaven and earth, is replaced by gods of the imagination. The Apostle John is the Bible's source of this term, Antichrist. In his writings, he used the word Antichristos. He's the only one who wrote it that way in the scriptures, but he isn't by any means the author of the concept. He wrote in 1 John 2.18 little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrist, whereby we know that it is the last time. And then in other verses in 1 John, such as 1 John 2.22 and 1 John four three, he describes the doctrine of Antichrist. What is it that people believe that is of the Antichrist? Well, in 1 John 2, 22, it says, Who is is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. And then in the fourth chapter in verse 3, And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come. And now... Is it already in the world? Now, the doctrine of the Antichrist is extensive. It is a doctrine that denies the deity and the lordship of Jesus Christ. It denies his right as the supreme ruler. It denies that salvation to eternal life comes only through him. It denies that he is the only way, the truth and the life. And as we see in verse number four, the Antichrist opposes all that is called God. That is all the works of the holy God. And so anyone who opposes any work of God has the spirit of the Antichrist in him. Now, as far back as the Garden of Eden, the spirit of Antichrist was at work. Satan is the originator of all false works, and he opposed God In The creation of man and it's speculated that God's intention that he would elevate man above angels it that may have been the event that set off Lucifer's rebellion. He didn't want to be just another creature that is put under man's dominion. Well, Lucifer rebelled against God in heaven. And then he carried that evil to the earth and began his centuries long opposition to God's work in redemption in the redemption of man through Christ Jesus. And thus he is Antichrist. And this opposition of Satan in the spirit of Antichrist will continue until God brings the history of this world to a close, the cosmic battle at the birth of Christ. That was part of the plan to prevent redemption through the cross. Satan lost that battle, but he continues and his last great attempt will be to give rise to the Antichrist, who will usurp God's authority on earth. And so we can follow the activity of Antichrist, this spirit of Antichrist down through the through the Bible's history, beginning at the fall of man. It was the spirit of Antichrist that caused Cain to kill Abel. It's the reason that the entire world was wicked in the days of Noah. And then God destroyed the world with the flood. And you can find the spirit of Antichrist in Pharaoh who tried to kill all Hebrew baby boys at birth. The spirit of the Antichrist was then in the Canaanites who fought against Israel's possession of the promised land. It was in the many plots To destroy the royal line of kings that threatened the Messiah's descent from David. And at times, the descent of Christ was dependent on just one child that had to be protected at all cost. The spirit of the Antichrist was in the Babylonians when they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in the days of Jeremiah. It was in wicked Haman when he tried to destroy the entire Jewish race at the time of Mordecai and Esther and then the spirit of Antichrist continued on through the intertestamental period when Antiochus Epiphanes the Seleucid king offered a sow on the altar at the temple The spirit of Antichrist was in King Herod when he was foiled by the wise men and then he retaliated by ordering all the male babies in the vicinity of Jerusalem to be killed. The spirit of Antichrist was in the time of Jesus' ministry. Crowds heard him preach, and it was in that crowd that tried to throw him off a cliff in Nazareth. It was in the chief priest and the scribes who took him to a mock trial and condemned him. It was in Pilate who let a seditionist go free and replaced him with an innocent man and then nailed him to a cross. It was in those who pleaded with Pilate that he should seal the tomb to prevent the resurrection. It was in the Jewish leaders that hated the church and gave authority to a man named Saul to search out Christians and take them to prison. And then it was in those who took this very same man when he was converted to Christ and imprisoned him and then put him to death. It was in Roman emperors like Domitian and Caligula and Nero. And yes, even in Constantine, who promoted a paganized Christianity in the Roman Empire. And it was the spirit of the Antichrist that was in the popes who cruelly began the Inquisition and persecuted God's people and tried to hunt them to extinction. And then the spirit of the Antichrist is also very modern, it was found in Hitler with the Holocaust, in Stalin in Russia, now with communists in China and Muslims who have infiltrated every European country and the United States as well. And it's found in the halls of the American Congress and in our Supreme Court and in the presidency. See, the spirit of the Antichrist is alive and well throughout the world as they're ...are those in Palestine who want to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. It's alive in Hollywood. It's alive in the liberal news media. It's alive in the sexual perversion of LBGTQ... ...that threatens our families and the very existence of this nation. And it is alive as the spirit of murder... ...in anyone who supports abortion. And friends... The spirit of the Antichrist is here in Roanoke Park as there are churches that deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And in John's day, he said the spirit of the Antichrist is already working and he is still working through false prophets in America and throughout the world. Well, the question before us today in this text is why is there alarm? Why is there alarm In the Thessalonian church when the spirit of Antichrist has always been in the world. And if that spirit has worked since the beginning of time going back to the Garden of Eden. Then why are these people in this church so upset? What is it that has them on edge? Well we can trace this problem back to their misunderstanding of end times. And Paul's teaching about the appearance of the Antichrist and the coming of Christ. Now this is. The man in whom the, the Antichrist is the man in whom the spirit of all these Antichrists will culminate. He's the one who embodies them all to the nth degree and in their worst form. And so the church was alarmed because they thought the persecutions they, they were going through in that time was the last time. And so the alarm is tied to intense persecution that will come at the hands of this one man... His appearance is taught in the Old Testament. It is taught in the teachings of Jesus. That's where Paul got his information and from the Holy Spirit. And it's in the Bible that in the end times, they will be characterized by the appearance and the embodiment of the worst evil imaginable in this person that is known as the Antichrist. Now, we read some of that in Matthew chapter 24 in the scripture reading just a moment ago. Now, let's look at, at this text and see how Paul deflects Thessalonian misunderstanding. And he shows that their present persecution was not an indication they were living in the final days of this world. And he ties his instructions to what the conditions of the world will be like in the day of the Lord. Now, we look again in Second Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 5. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worship so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was with you, I told you these things. And so our attention is drawn to the confusion of the Thessalonian church about end time events. And as you see in verse number five, Paul had explained this he explained it uh, all about the last days when he was in the city and when they were converted to Christ and when they became a church. And then this is also part of what he wrote them about in the first letter. Now, there were only probably only just a few weeks between the first and second letters. And in the meantime, the conclusion um, uh, and, and the confusion rather and had not been dispelled and And it was exacerbated by false claims, by forged letters and by false teachers in the church. Well, the church was indeed under intense persecution, and they misunderstood this persecution to be the final catastrophe of the end times. And what they didn't understand, because they were just new Christians, was that persecution is characteristic of all times, and that God's people will go through persecution, and we have experienced it from the beginning, and we've just rehearsed the history of it. And we've seen the spirit of Antichrist has tried every way imaginable to destroy God's people. And when this misunderstanding of persecution is coupled with the plethora of misdirection and and of those that are trying to fool them, well, they were living in despair that God's promise that he would deliver them had failed. Now, you see in the end of the second verse... The problem is speculation that the day of the Lord was at hand. And the problematic issue is unacceptance of what Paul said or misunderstanding of what he said in the first letter. Now, in chapter five, going back to first Thessalonians, in chapter five, as Paul ended that first letter, he explained that believers will not experience the day of the Lord. Now, they'll not see it. We'll not see it on this side of glory. The church will not go through any part of that day because the church will be gone from the world. Now, I want to look at look at this teaching first and refresh us on this promise of our deliverance, just as Paul did the Thessalonian church. Now, first, then we see the reception of the church in the first verse. Now, we beseech you, brethren, by the coming Of our lord jesus christ and by our gathering together unto him now we notice a very important word in that verse our english text reads the coming the coming of the lord jesus christ and coming is the greek word parousia and that refers to the lord coming for his church so if you look back into the first letter in chapter 3 in verse 13 There, the apostle says to the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And then in the fourth chapter and verse 15, for this, we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. The coming in those verses is parousia. It's the event of the rapture that happens before the world is plunged into a terrible time of judgment. It is the rapture that is immediately preceding the day of the Lord. And and this is what kicks off the events of end times tribulation. And so this means that the day of the Lord is for unbelievers and that's what Paul said in chapter five, verses three and four sudden destruction, he said, comes on them. It will not come on you who are believers because you are children of the day. You are children of the light. You don't walk in darkness, in the darkness of this evil world. And so that destruction that is coming is for them. It's not going to affect people. It's not going to affect you if you are a believer. Why? Why? Because he said in the third chapter, the Lord is coming. And in the fourth chapter, he said, when he comes, those that are asleep in Jesus will be raised, and those living will be changed to go up. They will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's when the archangel sounds, that's when the trump of God sounds, and then God's people go up. And in the first chapter, Paul said, you will be delivered. From the wrath to come. In Second Thessalonians two, the apostle emphasizes them that parousia is the same as what he said in the first letter. And so he couples that with the gathering. We beseech you, brethren, by the coming, by the parousia, and by our gathering together unto him. We will be gathered with him. We will be received up in the glory. Now, that gathering refers to God's people. It's only used that way in the New Testament. It is the assembly of the redeemed. And we notice that Paul uses this to deflect the false impression that present persecution indicated that the day of the Lord was upon them. So the day of the Lord couldn't be upon them if they were still in the world. So we see in first and second Thessalonians that Paul's Theology of the end times is consistent. He eliminates any possibility that there would be a mid-tribulation rapture, that is, Christ would come in the middle of tribulation, or a post-tribulation rapture, that Christ would come after tribulation. And so what Paul intends to do here is to uh, take this section of the letter to explain what happens after the rapture and to use that as proof. That they were not in end times tribulation. What comes afterward can't happen until the Lord appears for his people. And the fact that the Lord hadn't come, they hadn't seen Jesus, that was evidence that they were not in the day of the Lord. And I want to emphasize that to you today, that there are many prophecy pundits that try to figure out the signs. They're looking for all the indicators that Christ will come And so interestingly, they look at the world's troubling times. They see the hatred of people against Christ. They measure wickedness by Hollywood and Congress and the Supreme Court. They measure it by the rogues that run our government and they look at what we're going through now and that meets their criteria. And so they say, or they are convinced that we're at the end. And so they measure it by things like the trampling of Christian rights. And they say, aha, the end is near. We've never seen a time like this in America. And so they say, these are the signs of the times and Christ must appear. I remember one of our former members never failed to leave a service without asking me, have you seen this? Have you read this article in the paper? Uh, Do you know what the pope is doing now? And it's like we we have to look at those things and those are the answer to what's going to tell us when the Lord is going to come. But it's very clearly that is not what the scriptures tell us. And so this man would always say, these are the signs of the parousia. This is the time of the gathering. Does that mean that Christ is coming? And the answer is we can't know. And we can't know because the spirit of the Antichrist has always been here. This evil spirit has always been working in the world. And a review of history shows that our time is not even the worst time. So we can't judge it to be the time because we don't have the ability to judge. We won't see that time. We won't recognize that time Because the coming of the Lord could happen at any time. It comes without warning. So we won't understand it to be a different time. Persecution and the hatred of God's people has always been in the world. So we don't want to speculate about the time. We don't want to guess about that. Because then we would end up like the Thessalonians. We would end up with confusion and with false hope. Or we would have no hope. Predictions of Christ's coming foster Despair and confusion, they ruin trust in the living God who said, We will not go through the tribulation. And when predictions about Christ's coming don't come true, that's when people despair. They wonder, is it all real? Now, if you'll look back at chapter one and verse number seven, the apostle said, You that are troubled, rest with us. And he's telling us that the Lord is in sovereign control. Persecution has not and it will not set back the Lord's eternal agenda. Persecution never troubles the Lord, but their fears of all this prevented their rest and that confused them about whether God was always working for our good. And so if they believe false information, then they are convinced they will go through this intense tribulation of the last days that they would be treated just like unbelievers. That are destined for that day. So date setters and sign readers. Deny this truth of God's promise. Prophecy prophecy seminars that look for blood moons and signs in the sky. These people are liars. And this is the reason that we need to know the truth of God's word. And that's because our hope is dependent on it. Now let's take this a little bit further. We notice next the deception of Christians, the deception of Christians, Now, the spirit of Antichrist is in the world and got it start with the first lie that spirit lied. It promised good, but it turned out to be the wickedest, most diabolical lie that's been told. Satan tried to prevent Adam's fellowship with God and he was successful for a time temporarily but what he couldn't do was overrule God's sovereign plan for his first man now here's what happens when Satan loses the battle for the soul it's impossible for Satan to steal one of God's children and so he goes for the next worst thing and that is he works on our joy he tries to take away our peace he destroys our happiness And he's always working against the confidence we have in Christ. And doesn't that sound like what we've been through in this last year? Has Satan destroyed our confidence in God? And I would have to say, listening to many Christians, that's exactly what's happened. And that's what sin is. It's to miss the mark or the best that God has for you. When you yield to sin, when you doubt God, you shortchange the confidence of God. ...of your salvation. Now look at the second verse. Did you see how Paul termed this? He said, you're shaken. You're, you're shaken by this. You're troubled. You are, you are disturbed by what you've heard. And a disturbed Christian doesn't function well. A troubled Christian is spiritually crippled. His hope is off. His sanctification is off. Sin and the lies that he believes will cause him to look for the wrong things... ...and cause him to doubt God... Now, you think for a moment about the lies of the prosperity gospel. What happens to all these people that believe the lies and they never get the riches they were promised? What happens to their hope? What happens to their confidence in God? Well, they lose all of it. They've been fooled and they don't get what they think they were supposed to get. And it's just interesting to see how long that Satan has worked against the church Thessalonica is not the only place we see it. We can go into the book of uh, of Corinthians, both of the letters of Paul to the Corinthian church. And Corinth was a city that was a stronghold for Satan for years. The spirit of Antichrist was there for a long, long time and had locked those people down into every form of decadence. Corinth was sin city. That city was legendary in the empire for every form of moral decay. Then the gospel was preached and the spirit of God worked and people started turning from all the worship of their idols and that evil that they were in. They turned to the living God. What do you think that Satan then just said, well, that's over here. I'll just leave Corinth. Well, no, he lost the battle for their souls, but he was still in the battle for their minds. So you go on reading these letters to the Corinthians and you see how that Paul constantly combated sin in the church. And all that Satan did was to switch to one of his other many avenues of attack. He has those wiles. He has those methods. And they destroy the hope and the confidence of Christians. So fake news, disinformation, counterfeiting God. That's a diabolical tactic. In fact, that is who the Antichrist is. He is a counterfeiter. And so in the Thessalonican church, the church had received Paul's preaching as it was. They believed it was the word of God. They had confidence in him as a teacher. Paul advised them not to be hastily deceived and just go back to what they had been taught. Well, they did have confidence in the apostle. And with that much confidence... What can be done to shake that confidence and move them away from what they've learned? Well, what about this? What if there was a spirit? What if there was a false teacher who said that he had received a special revelation from God and this revelation reversed or altered what Paul told them? Now, in verse two, Paul said, don't be soon shaken in mind. Not by a spirit. And most likely what he means there is a false teacher. That's uh, how this is used in 1st John. And there John discussed the spirit of the Antichrist. Peter also used it that way. And that's the most likely interpretation. But we ought not to rule out the possibility that there was something supernatural here that was going on. Uh, You remember in Galatians that Paul said if an angel... Appears to you and tells you something different than what he taught. He said, don't believe him. He said, if that angel comes and preaches another gospel, don't believe it. Because even an angel has no authority to change what they had learned from Christ. So maybe that's what Satan tried in Thessalonica. Angels can take on bodily form. They can appear as men. They did that several times in the Old Testament. And so it seems logical to us that Satan's evil angels could do the same. And maybe that's what happened. But most likely, Paul means don't be troubled by a false teacher. And what does Satan do today? How does he work today? Well, false religions are built on false revelations. The charismatic movement has plenty that claim that they hear from God and they speak for God and people are fooled. They're persuaded. They gulp down the, the lies and they swallow the hook like a big mouth bass. And they assume that if their prophet said it, then it must be from God. And now we're finding that many of these false prophets must eat their words because they missed this pandemic altogether. They missed The outcome of the presidential race. There were many of them predicting a different outcome. And then now things have changed. And they've been proved to be false prophets. You can consider the Mormons. Their great deceiver was Joseph Smith. And he claimed what? What did he claim? He claimed he saw an angel. And this angel gave him the key to translating inscriptions written on golden plates. Well, guess what? Need I tell you those plates... ...were fake news. They weren't inspired writings from God. There were no plates. Of course the plates were fake. The concept was fake. The prophet was fake. And yet there are millions of people around the world... ...that believe this fake revelation of a raving lunatic... ...and from that came the Mormon false gospel. Today there's religious programming like TBN and SBN... ...that's filled with the deception of false prophets... who. Speak lies of new revelations. That's just one of Satan's oldest tactics. So the spirit of the Antichrist is to raise false prophets that ignore the scriptures, that manipulate the scriptures or who change the scriptures to make lies. Now, next, Paul says, don't be troubled by a word that you hear. Now, the meaning of that is an exposition, a discourse, a topic or a sermon. And this is popular, too. In end times, events are certainly fascinating subjects. And so if you want to get a crowd, just announce that there's going to be a prophecy seminar and that you have key insights into the future. And crowds will come. Books are written. Sermons are preached. And then out goes a flood of misinformation. Now, I, I, I personally experienced this because we go back to several months ago in the beginning of 2020 when we were preaching on this very subject there were people that i talked to that i've never talked before in my life that because we announced that we were going to talk about the antichrist and about end times they come out of everywhere and they're listening and they write me letters about things that uh, we preach and you don't see that on very many other subjects much of what is told people is never questions question i mean like a A shiny fake Rolex. People think all of it's real. If a preacher said it, then there has to be some truth to it. So how do you fight that? What do you do? Well, you go to the word of God. The word of God is the objective source of truth. Everything else that you hear is speculation and subjective lies. And when Paul preached, he used the scriptures to back him up. He went into the Old Testament. He preached to some like the Bereans who said, well, we're going to check everything that you say. We're going to check everything we hear by the scriptures. And that was especially important in New Testament times because there were some in the church that did have special gifts of revelation. Why did they have that? Well, because the New Testament wasn't yet complete. And so God would reveal certain things in that way. So what do you think that Satan did? He mimicked those prophecies. He distorted them so that people would be confused. Now, Paul warned the church that they must be very careful about this. They must examine this gift that someone claims that they have a revelation and to be very careful with that and to try them by the Old Testament, what it said, by what Christ said and by what the apostles said. And if it didn't line up, then reject it. So if someone Comes to you, tells you something that destroys your confidence in the grace of God, in the wisdom of God, in the providence of God, in promises of God. If someone put his thoughts and opinions above God and His Word, then reject it as lies. Now, still yet, there is a third prong in Satan's attack. Now, notice that Paul mentions a letter. Now, that, that's probably the most telling of all. Don't be shaken in mind by a letter. That appeared to come from him, from Timothy, or from Silas. Of course, they were the men that that taught them. These were the men that owned their confidence. And it appears that someone circulated a letter and said that the letter was from the apostle. And that was a formidable deception. In Galatians, Paul argued strenuously for his apostleship. He said he was chosen by God from his birth to preach the gospel. He had credentials. He said that Jesus revealed certain teachings to him through the Holy Spirit. And he said he didn't learn these things because he conferred with the other apostles. In fact, he told in Galatians about how he had to rebuke Peter when Peter was wrong. And that was certainly a sign of his authority. So this gave a sense That if you received a letter from Paul, it was golden. A letter from him was true because he spoke with the authority of the Holy Spirit. What he wrote, his letters were standards of truth because people had confidence they came from God. So that made whatever Paul said above reproach. And they accepted what he said as the truth of God himself. And well, they should because it was. So how would Satan harness all of these good feelings that they have for Paul and then use this to destroy them? How does he do it? Forge a letter. Some scheming, conniving false prophet writes a fake letter and signs Paul's name to it. And the people think, well, if that came from Paul, it must be true. And, you know, that was a common tactic in the first century. There are many spurious letters that were written, written, many of them claim to be from the apostles. Now, today they're grouped under the heading of pseudographia. Um, some are fooled. Some were fooled by these false letters. Some still today will pick up those letters. They're still extant and they're fooled by them. They are misled. Why? Well, because people don't want to believe the truth. They don't want to believe the Bible. And so the spirit of the Antichrist is at work and he looks for any way that he can to discredit the Bible. So false gospels were planted to confuse the true gospel. You can't be saved without the true gospel. Well, why didn't pseudographia make it into the Bible? Because God preserved his word. None of these fake books, letters rise to the holy character of true writings. None of them were good enough for, to fool true students of the word. And so the church never recognized them as inspired and infallible. You can't have something in the Bible that contradicts the Bible. And so the truth of scripture was not determined by somebody's committee. No, the Holy Spirit impressed the church with the sense of the true and the false and the common usage. Of the canonical book shows that these are the ones that were accepted. So in Thessalonica, a false letter circulated and the people scratched their heads and some of them were led astray. And so Paul says, don't believe it. It didn't come from us. There is one gospel and it will not change. There is one word of God. It will not change. There is one truth. It does not change. It was true yesterday, it's true today, it will be true tomorrow. Now again, the point is that certain events will happen in the day of the Lord. And as Paul sat down to write this letter, those events had not happened. And they still haven't happened. And yet the spirit of Antichrist is in the world. He is working and works hard to deceive you just as he has in every age. But what you see now, what's going on now, this is nothing but ordinary persecution. It is expected persecution, just like the Bible says that we will experience. But it's not end times persecution. And so next, Paul will describe what will happen with the spirit of the Antichrist, what will happen when it becomes embodied in the living person of the Antichrist. Now, you won't see it because the day of the Lord is not for you. They didn't see it. You won't see it, church, because the day of the Lord is not for God's people. Now, look at verses 3 and 4. He's going to tell them what will happen. They're not in the day of the Lord. Hopefully, that confusion will disappear. In verses 3 and 4, let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first... And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshiped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. These are things that will happen after the rapture. The time of terrible tribulation is coming. The Bible says that it is, but it's not for the church. And when the tribulation is over, that's when Christ will come to establish his kingdom and bring pristine conditions over the earth. But first, the earth must be purged by tribulation. Have you seen the Antichrist? Can you identify him? Well, if not, then don't ask me if it's the end. I don't know, and neither does anyone. Now, we will come back to this. And I'll tell you what we do know, I can show you what the Bible says, and then we'll all know as much as the Lord permits us to know. But in the meantime, we are told to keep our eyes open for the real Christ. He is coming. The Bible says that it can be today. And I'd much rather see him than a thousand antichrist. And I'd much rather know about him than any information about his imposter. So we, we implore you to trust the real Christ. He saves. He gave his life on Calvary to save you. He satisfied God for the sins of sinners. And that's the truth. You can't trust anyone but him and anyone who preaches the truth of his word. So hear him. Believe him. And the Bible says that you will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we do thank you for the word that we have received today. We thank you for the truth of the word. And we, we all say, surely, Lord Jesus, come there. There is persecution. There are, there are problems. Our country is in deep problems. It's a good time for us to pray that you will come. But, Lord, if you should decide not to come, you do tell us to keep looking, keep our eyes looking out for you and to live as Christians should live, because that is the way that the Bible describes that we look. Lord, we come to you now and we think about the events of this last week and we see uh, problems and we see wickedness and um, we see that our government is headed in the wrong direction, we believe, uh, when it doesn't follow your word, and when it implements policies that are against your word, then we know that we don't have a government that pleases you. But we do know this, that wicked men choose wicked governments. And no matter what party it's from, men are wicked. And we can't expect that the government will do anything that will help us out spiritually. And so we ignore the government to this extent on these issues, that we don't look to them for our hope and our confidence, because it'll never be found there. Lord, help us to stand strong. Help us in these coming days to do what is right. But I I think most of all, we need to pray for the government itself, for our leaders, that their minds will change, that they will see righteousness and holiness and obeying the word is the way to go. And that is the success of our country. So, Lord, bless us. Help us. Be with our church. Bring us back together again. We need to be in fellowship. And Lord, you have your purposes We don't know what all of them are. We don't know what you're doing uh, completely with leading us through this. But we know, Lord, our strength should be our faith should be strengthened through it because you always do all things well. Help us, Lord, in this. And we give you the praise in Jesus name. Amen. Now, for our benediction today, we'll go back to Matthew chapter 24. Now, in my update a couple of weeks ago, I made a promise and a plea that we would quiet down some of the politicking that goes on in church and not let issues that the Bible doesn't address divide us and destroy our unity. But at the same time, I wrote that this doesn't mean that I won't address moral issues and those things that are certainly taught in the scriptures. And my best illustration of the message that I've just preached, a message on many antichrists that are in the world, is found in the events of this past week. I was reminded of them when I read this quote in my devotional reading this past week that said we must do whatever we can to respect God's image in even the most broken and twisted lives, whether already born or still in the womb. Even the least of these carries intrinsic dignity and worth. And that quote was important to me as the new administration has promised that one of its first acts will be to roll back the restrictions that have been put on abortions in the past four years and to increasingly allow the use of our tax dollars for murdering babies in the womb. And they will repeal laws that have prevented the spending of American dollars in foreign countries on abortions. The first executive, one of the first executive orders that was signed on the very first day of this administration was a guarantee of LGBTQ rights as fundamental civil rights and that there will be no discrimination in the use of bathrooms, no discrimination uh, of transgendered males in women's sports, And no discrimination of any by any employer who doesn't want a male dressing in women's clothing at work. But there is no provision for those who protest on biblical religious grounds. Another first act of this administration is to nominate a man who is transgendered to a woman to become the assistant health secretary. So he dresses as a woman. He doesn't even have enough sense to look in the mirror to see what he is. And that's the kind of person who will write health laws for our country. Now, I mentioned that the spirit of Antichrist is in our government, and it's just too obvious to miss. Immediately, this administration is pushing for a godless agenda. And you just look at its most vocal supporters, the news media and the entertainment industry. Both of those got dishonorable mentions in my sermon. So, yes, John was right, even now. There are many Antichrist in the world. And this is why I told you or why I prayed just a moment. We need to pray for our government that that they will turn around and see the righteousness of God's holy word. And so with those thoughts in mind, I return to Matthew 24 for our benediction in verses 42 to 44. We're told to keep watching for the Lord's return. Let's continue to stand for the truth. As a church, we must stand for the truth. Look for the Lord and not be caught unprepared at his coming. We cannot join the wickedness of this world. Now in Matthew twenty four and verse number forty two, watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready for in such an hour as ye think not the son of man cometh. And that's the hope that we have in an hour when we think not is a good thing for us as Christians that are looking for the return because we will be ready when he comes. And that means that he can come at any time. So let's keep our hope alive for that. Put all of our trust in our Lord God. Well, We hope to see you soon. Take care, be careful, and uh, we'll see you the next time as we preach God's Word. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California. 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.